Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, America's biggest cities have long reigned as the nation's economic and cultural capitals. But is that still true in the wake of COVID and the rise of remote life? The pandemic has also made inequality glaringly apparent. Some cities are pushing back with progressive policies, but will those policies render city life even less attractive? And if so, for whom? So we ask the question, are big cities past their prime? Hi, everybody, and welcome. And yes, that is a question that has been taking shape really now for many years now, as cities have been undergoing population and demographic shifts, and technology has been changing the way we live everywhere. But with the pandemic, all of this happening at hyperspeed, these changes and shifts, we have Zoom towns popping up around the country. We have people using services like Amazon to get the things they want and need without ever having to go outside their front door. We have streaming services like Netflix and Hulu changing not only where people are going for their entertainment, but when they're going for their entertainment. And we have even dating apps uh, making it possible for people to find love and each other, not by going downtown, but by going online and maybe even going across continents. So does all of this mean that the best days of big cities are behind them? Or does history tell us that cities have always gone through their ups and downs, and when a city is down a little, there's always a chance that it's going to make a comeback? Well, these are the questions that we are here to debate right now. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared. Okay, everybody, delighted that you are here with us today because not only do we think you're going to enjoy and learn from this debate, but we also want you to participate in the debate. And we're going to ask you to do that by asking you to vote. In fact, two times, once before you've heard all of the arguments and again, after you've heard what all of the debaters have to say on the resolution to tell us whether you are for, against, or undecided on the language, big cities are past their prime. And we will name as the winner of the debate the team whose numbers change the most in percentage point terms between the first and the second vote. So the way that we would like you to vote is to go to iq2us.org. That's iq2us.org. You will find there a multiple choice field with the choices telling us whether you are for, against, or undecided on our resolution, which is big cities are past their prime. So go ahead, please register your first vote. I also want to point out that we are keeping this vote open for seven days as we release this whole program to the world and letting a wider audience do the same thing you're doing. Listen, judge, and vote. So that done, I think it's time to see who it is we have debating. 
Arguing for the motion, big cities are past their prime, Jennifer Hernandez, an attorney and environmental advocate who has received numerous civil rights awards concerning land use and zoning laws. She's written three books and more than 50 articles on the topic. Her partner, Joel Kotkin, America's, quote, uber-geographer, and executive director of the Urban Reform Institute and author of several books, including The Coming of Neo-Feudalism. Opposing them, Margaret O'Mara, a historian and professor at the University of Washington who writes and teaches about the history of technology and American politics. She is author of Cities of Knowledge and most recently, The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. Her partner, Edward Glazer, an economist and professor at Harvard and also the author of several books including Triumph of the City and Survival of the City, The Future of Urban Life in an Age of Isolation. And now here we are, joined by our four debaters. I want to say Edward and Joel and Margaret and Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us for Intelligence Squared. Great to be here. Always great to be here. Thank you, John. So let's get right to it. We're going to go in three rounds, and the first round is opening statements by each debater in turn. Our first speaker will be Joel Kotkin. You'll be arguing in support of the motion that big cities are past their prime. Joel, it's your turn. Go for it. I think cities have been past their prime in many ways compared to where they were 40, 50 years ago, for quite a long time. But, but I want to just define what I'm talking about a city. I'm really talking about the core city. Um, the metro region is a completely different thing and is much more you know, much more important. Um, uh, and so I, what we're really seeing is that, that regions are becoming more important than cities as we have historically de- defined them. And these regions are predominantly suburban. This has been accelerated by online. It allows people more options. You know, let's say if you live in Riverside, California, and your job is in Irvine, California, it's kind of the death march to do that every morning, uh, besides the fact that it's bad for the environment but uh, and mental health. But the reality is, over time, um, we may be able to go once a week. We might be able to go once a month. We might be able to go twice a month. So I think that you are going to see uh, this dispersion continue. Um, I think H.G. Wells had it right about 130 years ago when he said it will become a place of, of concourse and rendezvous and also a place of elegant extinction because increasingly very few people will have children in cities, particularly uh, middle-class people. So what we're really talking about here is not that cities are going to die, but that their function will be different. It's not that cities are going to die or even core cities are going to die. It's just that the world is changing. And in in that changed world, suburbs and exurbs will be relatively more important. Thank you, Joel, very much for your opening statement. I want to go now to our next speaker who will be arguing against the resolution that cities are past their prime. Here is uh, Edward Glazer. Edward, it's your turn. Thank you. So I think if we take a global perspective, uh, the case that cities are are past their prime is laughably false, right? So um, in 2018, the UN projected that we would go from having 33 megacities to having 43 megacities over the next 12 years. Um, These megacities are defined as having more than 10 million people in it. Today, more than one in eight people live in these megacities. And we see places like uh, Lagos, which has grown from 2.5 million in 1980 to over 15 million today. Bogota, which has increased from 3.5 million to 11 million. And Bangalore, which has grown from 2.8 million to 13 million. Cities are powering 
the growth of the developing world. They are providing enormous income benefits, and they're even places where self-reported happiness is demonstrably higher. So I think if we're taking a global perspective, this isn't even arguable. If we want to restrict ourselves just to the U.S., I think the case is closer, but I still think it is very much false that cities are past their prime. And in part, it's because I feel like we've seen this before. When I was a kid growing up in New York City in the 1970s, the Daily News headlines screamed Ford to City drop dead. And it felt as if not just President Ford, but all of history was telling New York to drop dead. Because of changes in technology, because of the rise of suburbs, because of the death of distance, which meant that former urban powerhouses like the garment uh, industry uh, lost hundreds of thousands of jobs in a short period of time. And so consequently, Alvin Toffler, a futurist, writing in 1980, wondered whether or not the information technology of, of his age, uh, the, the fax machine and the personal computer, would make the urban knowledge industries that had come to be the mainstay of, of city life obsolete. But we'd all decamped to electronic uh, cottages. And yet New York, even the core of New York, even Manhattan, has experienced an enormous renaissance since 1980. Taken as a whole, New York City's metro area real estate prices boomed 111% between 1978 and 1988. The city got safer, and it became more economically dynamic. And the reason for this, and this is, of course, not just about New York, it's about London, it's about Paris, it's about Chicago, it's about Los Angeles, is that what globalization and new technologies did is they radically increased the returns to being smart. They radically increased the returns to innovation. And we are a social species that gets smart by being around other smart people. And it was this advantage of the ability to learn from one another in cities, exactly what Joel was talking about when he was urging his kids to go to New York when they're, when they're young, that in fact, cities came back. Now, looking forward, we've been through a, a terrible two years for cities. There's no sign that the basic urban function is disappearing. And there's no sign that, in fact, the, the value of knowledge is disappearing. Cities have been through much worse. They have been bombed. Uh, they've suffered worse plagues than this one. And they have come that because they play to humanity's greatest asset, which is our ability to work together, to collaborate, and to create incredible new innovations. Thanks. Thanks very much, Ed Glazer. And next up on screen, uh, we'll, with an opening statement in support of the motion that big cities are past their prime, here is Jennifer Hernandez. Jennifer, the screen is yours. Thanks so much. I really appreciate being here. I wanted to just plunge in by first pointing out we are in an age of, I think, hyper-partisanship and finding division when we don't need it. So already the first two speakers have illustrated this. Joel has said regions are incredibly important. Mega cities are incredibly important. And Ed echoed that. That's a point of agreement. What's I think not a point of agreement is the concept of core cities. And especially in California, where I work as a lawyer trying to get housing approved, by the way, is core cities as a function of uh, uh, climate imperative, high-density, transit-dependent housing uh, has turned out to be a completely nonsensical concept. What do I mean by that? When you have achieved a level of housing stability and a car, you start saving because the next step is to try to buy something. When you buy, you buy out. You can't buy in a core city. And buying is a really big deal. I represent civil rights groups in housing disputes and buying and depriving people of the right to buy is consigning generations to poverty. And we have already enough redlining history in this country to not use a high density, transit dependent core city dogma to insist 
that we're simply not going to allow new generations to buy into regions, mega cities. I grew up in the exurbs of the Bay Area, and my dad was a steelworker, so were my grandfathers. That's what's affordable, only that's not even affordable because we've stopped that level of growth in California. But the world has changed. Technology has changed. I'm sure there were people defending horses and buggies, and certainly I know the people were defending telegraphs. The world has changed. We just completed a big study now in the SCAG region, all of Southern California except San Diego, finding out who's telecommuting, who wants to telecommute, and even for essential workers who have to be on the job, they have the opportunity to buy into shorter work weeks, four days instead of five, travel less, and do some of their functions from home. They also can do functions like banking and telemed and tele-training and continuing workforce training much more easily, and they can be civic participants much more easily. So I'll stop by saying there's convergence on a megacity, there's absolute disagreement on core cities. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Let's get back to our debate. So reminding everybody that our motion is big cities are past their prime and here to make her opening statement in support of the motion that cities are past their prime. Here is Margaret O'Mara. Margaret, your turn. If we take the long view throughout millennia, throughout human history, large cities, density of human settlement has been critical, not only for protection from harm, but also in creating commerce, building wealth, Uh, uh, communities of sociability, and critically, communities of innovation and creativity where new ideas come together and advance social progress and human understanding. The concentration of people and ideas, the physical proximity has been generative of new technologies, of new ideas. It has been critical, as, as my partner Ed noted, we are social animals, and coming together has been critical for It's the glue that brings human societies together. And density, urban density is critical. Cities are also extraordinarily resilient. Uh, Cities have uh, endured war, have endured epidemics and pandemics repeatedly. There is a reason that cities have become more, have endured even in a digital age. And I point directly to the tech, tech industry and the the companies that are the biggest tech companies in the world at the moment. These are not, uh, even though Alvin Toffler predicted that we would all retreat to our electronic cottages 40 years ago, as Ed noted, not only have we not done that, but the companies that build the technologies that enable such retreat and remote work have doubled down on physical campuses in the last 15 years. You have Apple investing a billion dollars in a a grand campus. You have Google and Facebook. You have other, you have up here in my town of Seattle, you have Amazon and Microsoft. And yes, not all of these are in traditional central business districts, but as I argue in my work, this concentration, the density 
of human settlement in places, including Silicon Valley, make them more urban than suburban, and they have been for quite some time. Cities are also dynamic. They're always changing. They're always resilient. There's never a, we can never say this is the end. This is just the beginning. Thank you. Thanks very much, Margaret. And that concludes our first round. And our second round is much more of a freewheeling conversation. I want to go to Ed Glazer. Uh, I take note that you said that there's no sign that the basic urban function is disappearing. Um, Yet I hear your opponent, Joel, when he's describing the basic urban function, terms of that basic function, work, residence, middle-class prosperity, that he, he would be making the case that those functions are totally broken. And I want to ask you to respond to some of that. So the fact that cities are unaffordable for middle-class people, which I, and, and too many of them are, is not a sign of urban failure. It's a sign that people actually want to live in cities. Cities are, are not delivering enough housing to meet the demand. But if the demand wasn't there, as it wasn't in the 1970s, that, that, that problem disappears immediately. So this is not a sign that cities are failing. I agree with Joel that we have a big problem in terms of urban schools. Uh, I, I think that's exactly right. But, you know, crime got a lot better over the last 30 years. We really did make progress on that, at least until the last two or three. Um, and it is at least a, a is both a dire need and a great hope that, in fact, cities can improve their education. We do have a track record of cities getting better. Cities fixed places of or enormous filth in the early 19th century and turned them into hygienic, sanitary places. We can also do that with the children of the disadvantaged who grow up in cities. All right, let me let Joel jump in on that. Go ahead, Joel. For the type of units that families are not going to go into, um, their studio apartments, small one-bedroom, to to go and think you're going to get a three-bedroom apartment in New York is probably not going to happen. Um, now, part of the, the thing that is also happening is urbanity is shifting. I mean, um, Margaret was talking about, about Apple. Now, that's in Sunnyvale. I ask you, go to Sunnyvale, and you tell me <laughs> that that has anything to do with with a city, uh, I, I mean, as we traditionally understood it. Now, if you want to start saying that, as uh, Frank Lloyd Wright said, the city is wherever the citizen goes, I think that's right. But but the, the vast form of, of Silicon Valley, the most of the growth in Austin, all taking place um, in, you know, mo- mostly in suburban areas, um, in terms of patents, um, a- according to Rich Florida's research, Actually, there are more, most patents are in fairly low uh, uh, areas in terms of density. So, I mean, I think that there are functions where cities are uniquely uh, uh, strong, but I think a lot of their employees, a lot of their people, I think people have gotten used to having options. And I think that one of the big issues for cities, and this is maybe an area where Ed and I would agree, is cities have got to compete for people. There's now more options of where you can go in terms of which cities and what part of cities. And I, if I was to advise mayors, you've got to deal with, with education, you've got to deal with crime, and you've got to deal with having a middle-class economy. Um, I don't see anyone in Los Angeles pushing hard to get Elon Musk to build, to build Teslas in, in South LA. The kind of economy that we're evolving in our urban centers is one that's very bifurcated, and I don't think it's sustainable socially. Joel and Jennifer, uh, I don't get the sense that you necessarily are saying big cities are past their prime, and that's too bad. I'm not hearing you say, I'm getting more of the sense big cities are past their prime, and let's move on. 
and Jennifer, almost from you, I've almost got a sense of big cities are past their prime and good riddance. Am I reading <laughs> you correctly on that? The core city as a middle-class construct, I believe, is not only past its prime, but good riddance. The kind of jobs that uh, are being discussed for lower or middle-income workers even are service jobs for the wealthy and the professional class. Uh, those are not jobs that traditionally have paid enough, nor will they pay enough, even at $15 and $19 an hour numbers, to afford housing in those locations. It simply doesn't work, and it's not going to start working. On the other hand, mega regions, which are anything but past their prime, they're thriving, and they're thriving globally. But to actually support a mega region construct, you have to make the mega region work. You have to recognize that transportation solutions have to work within and between suburbs, not just that there's some hub of a spoke. And to actually make housing work and school districts work and civic participation works, we actually have to stop planning for downtown San Francisco. We have to start planning for the region and planning for a middle class success route in the region. And that the Bay Area has broken as well. So it sounds as though what we're debating about is maybe what has been called downtown. In most communities, there's the notion that there's a dense urban area that you're going to go to. If you have enough wherewithal, you're going to live there. If you're able to live and work there, you would like to do that. And you're going to dine there. You're going to go to movies there. You're going to raise your kids there. That that downtown, is, I think, is the kind of thing that we're talking about is threatened now. And I, I want to go to Margaret. When you hear Jennifer essentially saying, yeah, good riddance, to that model, mm -hmm. that it's, what's your response to that? Well, my response is that everything we're talking about here in terms of housing and infrastructure and even the downtown itself is the product of public policy creating market incentives and those change over time. Why do we have central business districts? That's a result in part of the rise of new types of industries, white collar service industries in the 19th century, new technologies of building that allowed for skyscrapers, but also zoning laws starting in the early 20th century that separated commercial activity from industrial activity for resi from residential activity. And you and, um, and Margaret have been talking about how the value of cities is the proximity of human beings being able to see each other face to face, talk to one another, go upstairs, go downstairs, run into each other in the neighborhood, see each other in the grocery store uh, or in or in that nearby workplace. That that's where human interaction happens. That's where innovation happens. And you've heard from them a series of reasons they don't think that that's necessary. Number one, working, but also not really necessary. That the 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 implication being that. Technology, and we've seen this some the case made more successfully in the past year or two because of the pandemic. The technology is replacing that human need to be each other, to be our best selves, and to be our most productive societies. I would really be curious to hear what your response to that is. This affordability discussion reminds me a lot of Yogi Berra's line that Tut Shore is so is so crowded that nobody goes there anymore. Right. That, in fact, big cities or downtowns or whatever, whatever you want to say, are, are just so desirable that nobody that they're clearly past their prime, because uh, that's what those high prices mean. And whatever the sort of argument about, you know, that these downtown, these faux downtowns that are created on the BART stop a long way away from San Francisco that they're not going to sell. That is just completely irrelevant for the dynamism and continuing uh, uh, desire of people to actually be in real cities where they're next to each other. Um, 
returning to the key issue of face-to-face -face contact and work, um, we have a fair amount of pre-COVID evidence on just how strong the connection is between high levels of employment density and productivity. So certainly, if you look within uh, greater New York, the correlation between employment density and productivity is, is enormously strong. Uh, if you look across metropolitan areas, the correlation between employment density and uh, GDP per capita is enormously strong. Now, what do we know about this, this Zoom thing? Uh, what we know is that for many activities, it was absolutely dismal. For example, for schooling, right, the world of, you know, we have a number of studies of remote work at, at this point in time, and it's somewhere between disastrous and catastrophic in terms of kids, in terms of younger people learning uh, over Zoom. There are simple tasks that can be done remotely, relationships that can be done remotely that, uh, that work. But uh, the ability to form new relationships is much more hampered. And I'm just going to read you from the abstract from the journal Nature uh, by Sonia Jaffe and her co-authors. And this is a study of, of tens of thousands of Microsoft workers. Um, our results show that firm-wide remote work caused the collaboration network of workers to become more static and siloed with fewer bridges between disparate parts. Furthermore, there was a decrease in synchronous communication and an increase in asynchronous communication. Together, these effects may make it harder for, for employees to acquire and share information across the network. So this switch to remote work was not some costless thing. It was a real change that had real effects on the way that relationships work. And relationships are fundamentally the engine of, of creativity. Would, would, would that in-person meeting not also be possible if you're out in the suburbs somewhere? For sure. Uh, but, you know, the, the proximity between people is fundamentally what cities are about delivering. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we're in Cambridge. We're not in downtown Boston. That's right. But this is still, you know, a big city by almost any reasonable definition. Um, and it is certainly possible to have a meeting, to have a conference in, this, in the suburbs and have everyone in the same room. But that tends to be a very planned event rather than the sort of more, uh, you know, uh, more random, more uh, bump rate related interactions that so often happen in, in dense urban areas. I, I'm also curious to ask all of you about a, a political question. Um, many of the cities we're talking about, by no means all of them, and of course there's a whole gradation of what do we mean by cities, which keeps coming up here. But if we talk about Boston, if we talk about New York, we talk about Los Angeles, we talk about Seattle, um, we're, we're, this is the Bay Area, we're talking about communities that have elected regularly uh, quite progressive leadership. And and, and we're already seeing this notion of a great separation taking place among the population, progressives moving to cities and uh, conservatives moving out of cities. It may be overstated, but you know what I'm talking about. And I'm just curious to, to go to you, um, Joel, to what extent does, does the, political, uh, the political dimension to this, if at all, play into your argument that cities are past their prime? Well, first of all, and I think this is probably an area where Ed and I would probably agree, one of the great disasters for the cities has been the adoption of, you know, what we might want to call progressive, although I don't, I wouldn't call it historic progressivism. It's the new progressivism. In other words, when you elect DAs who, you know, choose not to, to enforce the law or, you know, obviously you have the, the defund the police thing. Um, you have, uh, you know, you have people like, like AOC blocking Amazon going to, uh, to Queens, which, you know, would have been, I think, probably, I think Ed would agree, a pretty big stimulus to that area. So, I mean, the, the, the reality is we, we when cities did make their comeback that Ed talks about, which is, I think, legitimate, you think of who was there. You had Bob Lanier in Houston. You had 
Giuliani, and then you had Bloomberg, and then you had um, you had reform mayors in in some of the other cities. We don't have that now. So the question is going to be: Will cities somehow find this a way of centering themselves, um, getting control of things, and then I think their chances are will be much better. I don't think they'll ever go back to what they were in the past, just because history has moved on and you know the world is much bigger. But I do think that cities can rescue themselves and do much better if they can change their political um, stance. All right, Mar- Margaret, I, I didn't expect to get to a question like this, but based on what Joel's saying, you know, is there an argument that cities were cities are more prime, are more in their prime if they don't have progressive leadership? I mean, do, you can take that question however you want. Look, homeownership has been the vehicle for building personal wealth for the better part of a century. Of course, those that have been discriminated against people of color in home ownership systemically, generationally. Of course, the access to home ownership is a critical vehicle of wealth creation. But what if there were other ways to build economic opportunity? Moving to the the mass suburbanization since the 1950s has contributed to a, a more isolation. It's more unlikely for people to encounter one another. This geographic sorting of progressive cities and conservative suburbs and rural areas is in part, this is accelerating political polarization. And we have plenty of evidence, again, looking, taking the long view that Simply having people as neighbors and finding a way to rebuild that social fabric goes a long way. So, again, I'm hearing the side that's arguing that cities are not past their prime, talking about acknowledging that cities have had a rough couple of years, but that a comeback is possible and that abandoning the goal of trying to help them come back is not the way to go. Whereas your opponents, I think, are saying yeah, let's let it go. Times change, things change, the world has moved on. But I, I want to take that question to to Jennifer, just in terms of investment in in cities. I mean, again, traditional cities. I mean, let's say an investment in Manhattan, let's say an investment in San Francisco. Are, are, are cities worth in, investing in to try to establish their primeness again? So on uh, transit first, um, our uh, spend on uh, mass transit has been extraordinary pre and post COVID uh, and ridership has dropped uh, uh, every year, uh, again, pre COVID. There were more people working remotely in Southern California than there were using transit at a time of unprecedented investment in transit. It costs too much, it's too slow. When you go to voters and say, hey, can you approve a transit bond measure, sales tax. And they say, sure, when will the improvements be done? And realistically, you have to say 30 years, which is an entire working person's life. You have to think, wait a minute, there's a lot that's broken here. And so rather than throw good money after bad and try this time to maybe persuade more people to ride a bus, uh, which has been falling nationally, maybe it's time to actually think about investment where the money will go the farthest where you can improve life for more people and how many more people becomes an important metric. I love biking. I love bike lanes. 1.1% of Californians commute by bike. And yet our spend on bike lanes is huge relative to our now open contempt for the idea of relieving 
uh, bottlenecks on highways, even for carpool lanes, which are disfavored. Uh, who's being hurt versus helped by that policy? Who drives the most? It's people who are priced out of the inner city. And I use inner city this time for the core that was built on a different business model with, as Margaret says, very different social priorities, which then sucked up all kinds of resources for the region, transit being the easiest example. But in San Francisco, it takes almost a million dollars per unit to build an affordable housing unit. More from Intelligence Squared U.S. when we return. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Let's get back to our debate. I want to take your comments about, about transit and investment in transit to Ed. You know, 40 years of transportation economics at Harvard can be boiled down to four words, or so the old joke goes, bus good, train bad. There's a lot to like about smart buses. There's a lot to like about congestion pricing. And we need to be really careful on any large-scale transit system, whether or not the costs don't rapidly, you know, massively exceed the benefit. So I believe that cities are worth investing in. I don't think the federal government needs to subsidize them. Uh, I think that they can invest in themselves with their own property tax revenues. But I would not be prioritizing new, new transit lines. I would be prioritizing, like Joel would be, uh, kids growing up in schools. And mostly, I would be unleashing the builders who not subsidized, but with fewer regulations, will build a city of the future if they're just not held in a regulatory straitjack. Margaret, I see you nodding. <laughs> I agree. I mean, there are ways there. It's a, it's a matter of political imagination and will and deciding where, what, where you're going to allocate resources. So much of this conversation is grappling with the reality. I think two realities, um, one that we've, we've alluded to, which is the uh, a, a tilt in the American context, and we are talking chiefly about the United States um, in this conversation, towards um, road infrastructure, car, car infrastructure, and ha- single-family home infrastructure as a, as a vehicle for wealth creation and community development. Um, so that's one thing that's a cho- it's a policy choice. It's, it's creating, a, creating market incentives that uh, developers and individuals wisely follow because it's in their economic interest. The other is another dimension here, which I think is really critically important, is this very uneven economic geography of the United States at present, where you have so-called superstar cities on the West Coast and the East Coast and some other large cities in the metros in the center of the country. And then you have large parts of the United States, not only rural areas, but also old industrial hubs that have a lot of underutilized infrastructure that have very few jobs that are not only attractive white collar jobs, but also jobs that are meaningful, secure, and opportunity building for blue collar people. The former industrial cities like places like Dayton, Ohio, for example, you know, very, very different job base and economic future than say a city like San Francisco or, or Seattle. So I think there's part of a you know, are cities, are big cities past their prime? No. Is the unbalanced economic geography of the United States a problem in terms of equity, in terms of fairness, in terms of what cities might of the future might be? I would say that, say it is, but that's a, that's a different matter. You know, so much of this is personal to all of us, uh, whether we like country life or whether we like city life and aspire to that. I'm just curious with all of you, since you haven't declared where you are on the I'd rather live in a city or I'd rather live in a suburb scale. Uh, I want to ask 
ask each of you that question. Joel, I'll start with you. Are you a city guy or a country guy? Or You know, I think it depends on your stage of life. I think when I was 25 years old, living in a fairly dense L.A. neighborhood, it was great. You know, um, it was a great way of meeting people, particularly uh, the people I wanted to meet. And, um, uh, and, and it was great. Now, um, with, with children, I live, in, I live in Orange County, where I have a house and a pool and a backyard. And so, I mean, I, I, I think that there's a life stage issue here that uh, now for the, for the very wealthy, it's a different story. And, and there are certain people who have to be in that dense city. But, but I think for most people, it's this transition. What L.A. used to offer was a suburban lifestyle in a big city. That's, that's pretty much eroded now. How about you, Margaret? I, I see what I value in large cities is, and what I value about bringing up my child, my children in a, in a place like Seattle, which is an intersection of people from all around the world, um, is, the, is the diversity on many, many metrics, the opportunity for encounters with, interactions with, friendships, professional relationships, with people whose worlds and biographies are very different from mine. And just as Ed talked about the in-person seminar and how, how uh, you know, in- intellectually stimulating that is, I think I, I, I'm lucky to encounter that in my work, but also lucky to encounter that when I go to the coffee shop down the street. And large cities offer that in a way that other places can't. Jennifer? So uh, uh, I had never been east of Tahoe before going to uh, uh, Harvard as an undergrad. It was a shocking experience and it was thrilling. And I stayed in large cities for the next 12 years. Um, And when it was time to buy a house with my husband, we moved to Berkeley, which is a suburb and a city combined at a smaller and more manageable scale. Uh, and, And Berkeley drives my brother crazy, who lives in the foothills of the Sierras. I think it is very frankly disrespectful to a whole lot of Americans to say cities, are the future. I think cities are, of course, the future. So are university campuses, but they evolve. And I think it is disrespectful and fundamentally quite racially discriminatory to say, we want you all to want to live in a place you can't afford. Period. The end. They are simply unaffordable. And so, yeah, I'd like to live in like a mansion too. Um, uh, but that's not a debate that we should be having. What would be your hope for San Francisco 15 years from now? And what's your fear? So I was born in San Francisco and so was my son. Um, I uh, uh, wanted to work there from the time I was a little girl uh, on the outskirts of uh, the Bay Area. And I did work there and I was within, you know, four blocks of one location in downtown for more than 30 years of my legal career. Um, I have huge affection for San Francisco. There's a book by Michael Schellenberger called San Francisco, which tells the story of progressive cities uh, and their governance challenges. And one of the most powerful politicians in California during my lifetime, former mayor, former head of the legislature, Willie Brown, said, you can't do anything about the homeless in San Francisco. The advocates won't let you. And that is the story of San Francisco. We spend 1.1 billion with a B dollars on homeless service providers, all of whom think they're doing great work and there's no accountability. I hear you painting a, a, a pretty uh, unfortunate picture, but is your hope that that can turn around and your fear that it won't? 
there's enough money in San Francisco to change to a governable society, it will require confronting as opposed to pretending there's consensus with the radical left. I do think there's hope. And Ed Glazer, same question to you. What's your hope for the city of San Francisco in 15 years and what's your fear for it? You know, cities should never apologize for their inequality. Cities are places uh, where it's a really fun place to be rich and it's often a less intolerable place to be poor. But that inequality, right, which reflects in fact the strengths of cities in many ways, is only tolerable because if cities are proving to be escalators of upward mobility. Too often American cities have failed to do that and that includes San Francisco. And there's no question, my hope for San Francisco is that it does better for both the children of the disadvantaged, and that means as Joel has said, fixing the schools, uh, and it does better as an engine of upward mobility, not just for the people living in San Francisco, but for people who commute in, not from Stockton, but from places that are reasonably close. So that's your optimistic scenario. What's your pessimistic scenario for the city? They keep on doing the same stuff. <laughs> the, schools are, the schools are crappy and they don't build any more housing, not just in the city, but outside the city as well. Okay, thank you all for letting me conduct that brief poll. That's going to wrap up our second round, and I want to move on to our third round, uh, which will be closing statements by each of you in turn. They will be brief, two minutes each, and making his uh, closing statement in support of the resolution that big cities are past their prime. Here again is Joel Gottkin. Joel, your turn. Go. Okay. I, I just want to make this this point, that the there's been a huge tradition in this country to look at suburbs as places filled with angry, white, alienated people. Well, I can tell you 96% of the growth in suburbia in the last decade was among minorities. Um, I think that, that we have to understand also that people in the suburbs, it's not like they, they don't talk to each other. Actually, if you look at most of the studies, we'll show you that, People are more social in the suburbs, particularly in suburbs where people are homeowners. I know in my own neighborhood, which is diverse, that there are there are people who are, um, you know, we, we during COVID we were, were really helped each other a lot. Um, I, there's strong civic association in suburbs, and they're not they're not the boring places that that they once were. Um, um, it's become more interesting. Um, so I think that basically we, we have to understand that most Americans, the vast majority are vote, are voting with their feet for suburbs and exurbs. That doesn't mean we don't pay attention to cities, but we have to start thinking more about them. And I think academia in particular has been really, really slow to address these issues. Um, there's very little study of the places where the vast majority of Americans live. That I think is a great failing that we have to correct. We have to start thinking about how do we make life better for the vast majority of people? I think that's a challenge that our society faces and it's a challenge that cities also need to face. Thanks very much, Joel Gottgen. Our next speaker making a closing statement is Ed Glazer. Ed, you're up. So the topic that we're debating is not whether or not suburbs are important and often good places and, and places that need study. The topic is not, the debate is not that, you know, certain downtowns are somewhat dysfunctional, uh, especially when the police leave them. The topic is whether or not big cities are past their prime. When I look around me in both the cities of the U.S. and even more so in the cities of the developing world, I think that is very far from the case. And I want you to just 
go with me for a second to the Dharavi slum of Mumbai. I remember going walking around there about 13 or 14 years ago. And every place you walk, you would see, you know, new forms of human ingenuity. You would see, you know, guys who are sewing ladies' undergarments. And you feel like you're in the Lower East Side of Manhattan in 1905. And you see guys who are, are recycling boxes. And that means chopping them up and turning them out inside out so you couldn't see the old labels. How did they learn there was, there was like money in that? The city must have told them somehow. Then you go down and you see a ceramics district where there are these people making pots and they're so proud of them. They won't even take any money from you for them. These are people who started, came from places of enormous poverty, right? And there is no future in rural destitution. Places like Dharavi are places of possibility. They're places where there's a chance where we can change, where we're not just centered in subsistence agriculture that gets torn apart when the environmental factors get worse. They're places that are connected to the outside world. They're places where their children can actually have a chance. The fact of the matter is, regardless of what is happening in Orange County, the important things that are happening in cities are happening in the developing world, where billions and billions of people are finding a better future for themselves in big cities. Right? And for that reason, right, even though cities have been working miracles since Socrates and Plato bickered on an Athenian street corner, I believe very much that urban miracle, the age of urban miracles is not over. And big cities are absolutely not past their prime. Thank you very much, uh, Ed Glazer, again, making the argument against the motion that big cities are past their prime. Our next uh, debater will be speaking in support of the motion for her closing statement. Again, for the motion that big cities are past their prime, here is Jennifer Hernandez. Jennifer, you're up. Thanks very much. Uh, So I'm going to come back to where we started, or at least where I started, which is we're talking about big cities as the core city, not the mega region. I have agreed uh, uh, here and elsewhere that the mega region is the economic engine of the future. It is possible and in fact probable that the vast majority of people living in a mega region will be living at a suburban scale. It is also the case that even in big cities, there's a village around your very own neighborhood and around your very own workplace. People do like walkable opportunities to interact with other human beings. And that occurs regardless of how many people are on a sidewalk at any given moment of the day. We will continue to be humans that can actually improve our our lives if we recognize uh, and respect the choice of people to own a home, to live in a place that they feel safe and to respect the fact that those now seeking that kind of housing opportunity in the U.S. are majority minority members of our world. And we need to knit ourselves together. Increasing diversity in suburbs has been a reality for now a long time, except for the suburbs that stop growth. That's the immoral conclusion of the parts of mega regions that have priced themselves out of middle class homeownership. And that is to be attacked and criticized and condemned. Thank you so much, Jennifer. And Margaret O'Mara, you get the last word. Your closing statement will be against the motion that big cities are past their prime. Here you go. So in 1832, New York City had a devastating cholera epidemic. So did many of the big cities of North America and around the world during that time. 3,500, over 3,500 New Yorkers died. And the, the proportion in today's 8 million population of New York City would be as if 100,000 people perished. Uh, those, those who died were disproportionately poor. Um, a lot of immigrants, a lot of people who were not considered 
um, by the by New York's elites to be very worth uh, saving. And yet, um, even though some of those elites uh, in the cities uh, devastated by epidemic did build country houses, became early suburbanites, at least living part of the year away from disease, there was a doubling down on creating infrastructure, public health infrastructure, physical infrastructure that would prevent these sort of devastating diseases from uprooting city life because there was a recognition that cities were essential. They served essential functions. And I'm talking about core cities as hubs of commerce, as hubs of social life and cultural life. Let me tell you another story about my city, Seattle, it, which in 1971 had been so devastated by job cuts that its major employee employer, Boeing, uh, which had sheared off over 60,000 jobs in the region and countless others closed as a result. There are two real estate, uh, real estate agents put up a billboard on one of the main arterials saying, well, the last person leaving Seattle turn out the lights. That's a kind of funny billboard to think about 50 years on when Seattle is a tech hub, boom, a boom town, in fact, choking on its own success. And so I think I, it's not that cities are past their prime. It's not that cities, big cities in the United States don't have their problems. They certainly do. But those problems stem from the missing ingredient that was present in cities when they were at the peak of their vitality, which is a civic realm, a place where people of all incomes and all kinds could come together. Rebuilding that is critical. And, and leaders who invest in that, who become public servants investing in that rebuilding will be critical. Thank you so much. Thank you, Margaret. And your closing closes the debate. That was the end of round three. And now to all of you who are watching, it is time for you to take part again in this debate by voting for the second time. Uh, I want to remind you, we asked you to vote before. The second vote is going to happen now, and we tallied these and we determine as the winner of the debate the team whose numbers have changed the most between the first and the second vote in percentage point terms. I'm going to ask you again to go to iq2us.org and register with us whether you are for, against, or undecided on this resolution. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be keeping this vote open for another seven days so the people out there in the world, people who live in cities and people who don't live in cities can also tell us where they stand on this resolution. And after seven days, we will announce the winner on our website, iq2us.org. So with the competition over, and while I still have all four of you here, I just want to thank you so much for the way you did this, the homework that you did, the, the insight that you brought, the civility that you showed one another. Uh, I, I think in, that civility is somewhat based on the fact that in a lot of fundamental ways you agree, but you also disagreed in fundamental ways. And you presented your arguments with respect for one another and respect for the process. And you were clearly, clearly listening to each other. And that's a sort of rare thing these days. So uh, to Ed and Margaret and Joel and Jennifer, thank you so much for taking part in this Intelligence Squared debate. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit that is generously funded by listeners like you, members of Intelligence Squared, academic institutions, and other partners, and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is our head of editorial. Amy Kraft is our chief of staff and head of production. Shail Mara and Marlette Sandoval are our producers. Kim Strempel is our production coordinator. Damon Whittemore is our audio producer. And Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Our mission here at Intelligence Squared is to restore critical thinking and facts and reason and civility to American public discourse. 
We would love your support in that effort. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to join the debate and hear from both sides, at least both sides, of every issue. I'm John Donvan. Thanks so much for listening.